0: I hope you know, at least in part, what a joy it is for me to be standing behind this pulpit. A couple of reasons why that is true. Number one, because I love the Word of God and I love to proclaim the Word of God. And secondly, because I love you. So this is my great delight. Let me let you know what's going to happen for the next hour. I am going to be preaching the Bible. Now, what is the Bible? The Bible is the Word of God. It is a book. It's a book that is made up of 66 smaller books. It is divided into two Testaments. They are the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. We, for almost two years, have been studying one of those New Testament books. That is the book of Hebrews. We're almost finished with it. Today we're going to be looking at two verses in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it, then for a very long time I'm going to explain it, and then after that I'm going to give you four very quick points of application. So that's what's going to happen today, Lord willing. As I said, the text is Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. If you would turn in your Bible to that... And once you have secured that, if you would please stand and listen as I read the text. Hebrews 13, 18, and 19, hear the word of the Lord. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Our Father in heaven, we know that you have commanded us to pray. That is very simple. And yet, Lord, sometimes we have difficulty following through and doing that. And so, Lord, I simply pray today that you will teach us to pray, that you will prompt us to pray, that you will enable us to pray. And Lord, that we might pray with clear consciences. So help me as I explain the text today. I pray that you would give me an unusual compassion for the people. I would ask, Lord, that you would give me great clarity in my speech, and I pray that your spirit would accompany this with deep, deep conviction so that we might be changed, so that we might be glorifying you in our lives, and so that we might be happy in Jesus. And so help us, Lord, by your spirit to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Point of the Bible is Jesus. Point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. And the point of Hebrews chapter 13 is that we are to be doers of the word. In our Christian ease vocabulary, there are a host of words which get a lot of usage. But sadly, the frequency of the utterances don't always translate into real rubber meets the road, day-to-day practical application. In other words, we can take a beautiful concept in Scripture like faith or love or sacrifice and we can gloat on that, we can concentrate on that, we can preach about that, but there will sadly be a disproportionate actual practice of those things. In other words, at times we talk a good talk, but we have difficulty generating a good walk. Or as James warns, don't be hearers of the word only, but also be doers. Now these are beautiful words. These are beautiful concepts, but they don't always materialize in our day-to-day lives the way the Bible says that they should. Well, here's another one of those words, and it is the word prayer. Prayer is a word like diet or exercise. Uh, It is affirmed as being a very virtuous practice, but it is employed with little or no tenacity. And so if we take the words love and faith and sacrifice and diet and exercise and prayer, and I present them before you, they are good things to hear. They are in no way controversial, but they simply get more talk than they do action. Well, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, the author is calling for prayer, but not prayer in theory, but prayer in deed. And so what I want to do in order to direct your thoughts today is I want us to look at these two verses by answering three questions. Who, why, and what? Who, who is being commanded to pray? Question number two, point number two, why? Why? Why should they specifically be praying for this author at this time? And number three, what? What is the specific prayer request? Who, why, and what? Here we go with point number one. Who? Who is being commanded to pray? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. It is the people who have received the book that we call Hebrews. Verse 18 says, pray for Us, uh, the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written. Now, why is it notable that we point out who is being asked to pray? Well, it is simply because these people are weak. They are weak spiritually. They are discouraged Christians. They are contemplating a departure back into Judaism. They are contemplating leaving Christ, Christianity, and the church. And throughout this book, they have been repeatedly warned about the dangers of apostasy or departing from the faith. So, for example, in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, they are warned that if that's a conditional statement. If we go on sinning de- deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what does remain? Well, verse 27, but a fearful exp- expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, so you, you don't warn someone about these things unless you have some concerns about them. They are spiritually weak. Uh, They are said to be immature. He tells them that they are babies and that they are not mature. Back in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we read these words about their spiritual condition. About this, that is Melchizedek, we have much to say. And, And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by now you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk Not solid food. Why? Because they're babies. Now, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil they are mature immature in chapter 10 verse 25 it seems as though they have started to neglect meeting together in chapter 12 verse 12 they are said to have drooping hands and weak knees in chapter 13 verse 2 it seems to indicate that they were neglecting to show hospitality in chapter 13 verse 16 it seems to indicate that they were neglecting to share and to do good. And in the last verse that we studied, which is Hebrews 13, 17, it seems to indicate that some of them were causing groaning and sorrow for their elders. Yet, with all of these weaknesses and all of these expressions of immaturity, this author requests prayer for himself and for those who are with him and he requests it from people whom he knows to be spiritually immature. Now, this is very unusual, and I can prove that simply by asking you, when you ask someone for prayer, who do you ask? When I am asking for prayer, I go to people that I know, generally speaking, are faithful and mature. People who are living lives of obedience to Christ. People When I ask them to pray, who I know will pray. People who, from all outward appearances, seem to be walking daily by the Savior's side. Those are the people that I ask to pray, and those are the people that you ask to pray. But this author asks these immature people to pray. From this, we can learn, even though we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, my guess is that it is Apollos. I'm probably wrong, but it doesn't matter who he is. He knows these people, and they know him, they know who he is, and they know who the people are that are with him, because he doesn't say pray for me, he says pray for us, implied in that is that there are people with him. From this we can learn, and I think for us it should be very interesting and very encouraging, that these people, of all people, would be entrusted to pray. And I want you to note that it is not a suggestion to pray, it's not even a request to pray, But it is a command. Uh, In Greek, this pray for us is a present imperative, which literally means pray for us and don't stop praying. Do you know what an imperative is? Uh, I went through 13 years of public school, K through 12. Then I went through five years of college. It takes most people four, took me five. And then I did three years of ministry. And then I went to seminary. And it was only in seminary at the age of 27 that I learned what an imperative is. It's just a fancy way of saying a command. When I went to seminary, I had to take Greek. And when I took Greek, I was forced to learn English grammar. And at the age of 27, I learned what an imperative is. It is a command. And when a command is given in Scripture, it carries with it the authority of the Word of God. You believe this, and you confess this every time we gather together. Someone gets up, they read the Scripture. When they have finished reading the Scripture, they pause for a moment, and they look down over their right shoulder at this tiny piece of paper that is taped to the pulpit, which says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our Lord remains forever. And then... They should pause and with drama say, Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And when they say, this is the word of the Lord, you say, be to God. That's not convincing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ah, by saying, thanks be to God, what you are saying is, this has authority, and when it is read, it is God that is speaking. And so even though, in the context, this is a command which is given from one human being to a church in Rome in roughly the year A.D. 66, nevertheless, this is a command which is coming from God to you and me, a command that carries with it the force and authority of God himself to us, if not to us, for us. So when we read a command or an imperative, what we have to say is, God has spoken, and we must listen. I mean, this happens all over the Bible. Take, for example, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. We read these two commands. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You read that. What do you say to yourself? It says, I can't sleep with anybody who's not my spouse. It says, I can't take something that doesn't belong to me. Those are imperatives. Who said that? God said that. Therefore, I must listen to it. Amen. Everybody believes that. Well, Have you ever considered that failure to pray is likewise a command and it is a sin to not pray? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall pray for us. Three imperatives. Prayer is a command and failure to pray is a violation of God's righteous law. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. Samuel is talking to unsaved Saul. And here's what he says. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin, S-I-N, sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Do you see that? Failure to pray is sin. Now, I belabor this point. To show you that prayer is important and to show you that you must pray. But please remember that that is not the concentration of this subpoint. It is not that you should pray or, or that it is good to pray or that you are commanded to pray, although those things are true. But what we are looking at is the who. We won't get fooled again. The who. It is the who that we are to remember. And what is the who? That the people who are being asked to pray are immature. The apostle who writes this letter is entrusting or commanding spiritually weak people to pray. And you say, so what? Well, here's the so what. Some of you in this room are classified as spiritually mature. The reason you're classified that way isn't because, indeed, you are spiritually mature. You eat solid food. You love sound doctrine. You're not thinking about leaving the church or Christ. You don't forsake the assembly of the saints together. You do not neglect to show hospitality. You do share. You do do good. You, you don't have 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 hands which are drooping or we, knees that are weak. You have not made ministry burdensome for the elders of this church. You are mature. And to those of you who are mature, here's your command for the day. Pray and keep on praying. And you say amen and you will. There are others in the room, however, who are justifiably categorized as weak or immature or uncommitted Christians. And what you are accustomed to hearing with respect to the subject of prayer is this. You've heard it from me. You've heard it from other pastors. You have heard it from your disciple makers. You hear something like this. You know, you really should get serious about your walk with the Lord. And if you really want to develop a spiritual maturity, then what you need to do is you need to start praying and you need to start praying consistently. Now, that is not untrue. In fact, it is very true. However, based upon today's text, it doesn't matter whether or not you are a strong or a weak Christian. You and I, weak and strong alike, are commanded by God to pray. All of us who call ourselves Christians, this is an imperative. And failure to do so is not only a sign of a weak faith, but more than that, and this is what I want you to see, it is sin. Failure to pray is sin. Failure to pray over an extended period of time is habitual sin. Failure to pray over an extended period of time with no change whatsoever, is habitual, unrepentant sin. And if one is in habitual, unrepentant sin, it is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of death. It's a sign of death. I'm somewhat in mourning because tulip season is over. But there are other flowers to plant. You know I have a coach, right? I I have a mentor who guides me through the, uh, process of planting. And, and, and it is my friend Teresa Lupo. She, she is the one who instructs me. And so last year, when I had planted my late summer, early fall flowers, I, I had purchased some pansies, and Teresa said, you know, these things are going to survive if you take care of them. And, and so what I did is I took them, and I, I replanted them from the front into the back, and I, I put some mulch on top of them. And she says, if you keep them warm, they're going to survive the winter. They bloomed a long time, they survived the winter, and they turned out really nice. This is the work of God and Teresa Lupo. She helped me get to that point. There were some other things that I had, which I said, you know what? I want to, I want to make them survive too. And Teresa said, well, they're probably not going to survive, but you can try, do the same thing with them, replant them, put some fertilizer in there, put, you know, cover them up with some mulch and see if they will survive. So the winter comes winter goes spring arrives and there are some men who come to the church i'm sorry to the house and, and they are giving the the yard the the spring clean over and as I, i'm watching them work around the yard one guy is in the back of our house and there he is and he has this shovel and he's digging up these plants to throw them away and i went to him and i said stop don't do that this this has life this is going to bloom and he said sir this is dead, this is dead, this is not, this this is is dead, It's, it's not going to grow. This plant does not need water or sunlight or even prayer, it needs a funeral. I think the problem that we have is that Christians who do not pray are sometimes just considered to be sick When in reality, they're not sick. They're dead. All Christians, every Christian, even immature Christian, struggling, discouraged believers are expected to pray. And my point is this, in the 21st century church, somehow we treat prayer as if it were expected only from the Green Beret Navy SEAL Christians, when in reality, prayer is not a special mark of an advanced Christian, but prayer is an entry-level characteristic of everyone who claims to call God their Heavenly Father and Christ their Savior. So in the name of Jesus Christ, to those of you who are saved, regardless of your condition— based upon God's word, I am commanding you to pray and don't stop praying, that is the imperative. You listen to this and you say, there is nothing whatsoever which is controversial about what you're saying, it's not hard to understand, amen, hallelujah, I think you're right, pastor, will do. Yet I wanna warn you, if three or four months from now you have not developed a consistent prayer life, the outward indicators would point to the fact that you are not a weak Christian, but the outward indicators would say that you are a dead Christian. In other words, you are not a Christian at all. Remember what Brian preached last week on the subject of prayer when he was talking about the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. He's in Damascus, he is blind. God has sent a man by the name of Ananias to go to him and to minister to him. Ananias is reluctant. What is the one thing that God says to Ananias which gives him the courage and the confidence to go and talk to Paul, knowing that Paul is now saved? Acts chapter 9, verse 11, Behold, he is praying. So point number one, who is being asked to pray? Well, it's immature Christians. Point number two, this is, where we're going to spend, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, and this is a much more convoluted point and much more difficult to understand, and it will take more tracking on your part, a thinking cap and concentration. But we're going to try to answer the question, why should these people at this time be motivated specifically to pray for this author at this time? That is the question, why? Why should they? Very complicated, but I think if you hang with me, you'll be able to get it. Look at the text, see if you can detect the answer from just the reading of the passage. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. So let's go through it word for word. Pray for us, that is the command, for That word for means that what you are about to hear is the reason why, that is our question, why, what you are about to hear is the reason why they should pray for him or for them. For we, we means the author and those that are with him. For we are sure, means we have assurance or confidence. We are sure that we, that is the author and those who are with him, have a clear conscience. Hmm. You're reading this and you say, let me see if I get this straight. You're saying that you want us to pray for you and for your friends because you and your friends have a clear conscience. That's right. To which they would say, I I don't get it. How does your assurance of your own clear conscience help us understand why we should pray for you? How How does this inform us? How does it motivate us? What difference does it make? If you and your friends have a clear conscience before God, well, hallelujah, fantastic, that's great. But that seems to be between you and God. How is our fervency in prayer enhanced by your clear conscience before God? I just don't get it. Furthermore, he adds a participle or a participial phrase. Do you know what a participle is? It's another one of those things I never learned in school. A participle is a word which ends in I-N-G, and the participle here is at the end of verse 18, desiring to act honorably in all things. So not only am I assured in my conscience that I am walking rightly before God, but There is a desire in my heart to behave honorably in all things. And again, the reader might say something like this. So you're telling me that I should pray for you because you have a desire to conduct yourself above board in everything. That's exactly right. You got it right. To which the reader would say, that still makes no sense to me whatsoever. The why on the surface is so ambiguous, and it doesn't appear to be clear, and it does not follow a logical argument, and I want to submit to you today, it does follow a logical argument. I will grant you that it is not easy to see, but it is there, and it is beautiful. If you stick with me, I will show you. I will go in a very, as, as I do in all of my sermons, I will take a very circuitous roundabout path to this point, but we will get there here's where we have to start. Number one, the author of the book of Hebrews wrote the book of Hebrews. If you get that, then you are on your way to getting the answer. The guy who wrote this entire book wrote these verses. And so the words that he selects are very purposeful and very intentional. And he uses intentionally the word conscience in verse 18. And that is a word that he has used previously in the book. That's going to be the main impetus as to why this all makes sense. But I have to divert from that for several minutes now and just define for you what a conscience is. A conscience is that kind gift from God which puts us on trial and renders a verdict as to where we really stand. Were you paying attention to that? Did you understand what I said? You have a conscience. Your conscience puts you on trial, and it renders a verdict from you to you as to where you really stand. Your conscience is that thing inside you which talks to you and tries to tell you the truth. Your conscience is something which is a kind gift from God. A conscience is that thing inside a little boy which enables him to go to his mother before his sister goes to his mother. A conscience. And what does the word mean? It means with knowledge. Con means with. Science is knowledge. With knowledge. Conscience. And what a conscience is, it is a precursor to the great and terrible day of the Lord. It is a precursor to the final judgment. It is a pre-trial whereby you put yourself on trial before God puts you on trial. And God is going to put you on trial. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men once to die and after this the judgment. And so what a conscience does, it, it, it means that you are a witness and you testify for or against yourself as to your own guilt or innocence. And as sinners we don't like our consciences we don't like the voice of conscience we tell it to shut up we do things to drown it out we create loud distractions or we ignore it and hope that it will go away picture it this way you have a heart the heart has a window the window lets in light Light comes from God, it comes into your heart, it comes through a window. If that window is dirty, you will still get some light. Generally speaking, you will know the difference between right and wrong. But the dirtier that window is, the less light that can penetrate. And so if you have a soft and a clean conscience, light will come in and you will be exposed morally for who you really are. And when you see it as it really is, then you will deal with it as you must. However, if your conscience is a dirty window, you're going to have some idea as to what's going on. In fact, you understand English words, and when people say that's wrong, you can say, okay, objectively, I see that that's wrong. But you don't feel anything. Why? Because the window is dirty, and the light is not coming in. Now, please know that before the judgment bar of God... All things are going to be open, and all things are going to be naked before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. And in that day, because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, there's going to be complete, unambiguous exposure of all of our sin in the final day, and it's going to be an ugly mess. If you suppress your conscience long enough, it becomes seared, and it builds scar tissue, like, the nerve endings are no longer functioning. Think about it. You used to have a conscience. You used to feel bad. You, you had a functional conscience, and you had a knowledge, a science with yourself of how you really were. But you kept intentionally silencing yourself, and your sensitivity dis- diminished, and now whatever you do, you don't feel it. That is a dead conscience. And let's be clear, there's a difference between a dead conscience and a clear conscience. And the author of Hebrews has a clear conscience. What he's saying to these people is, I have searched my own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I can honestly say that I've thoroughly gone over it. And there is no known guilt to be found in me. Martin Luther put it this way in the year 1521. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all the cardinals. I have within me a great Pope, and that is myself, end quote. And the author of Hebrews says, I have a conscience too, and my conscience is working and it is working well. Therefore, in light of the fact that it's working well, I boldly ask you for prayer. Now, where in the world does confidence connect with conscience? Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan writer who died in the year 1680, succinctly and yet very profoundly said this, a good conscience and a good confidence go together. A good conscience and a good confidence go together. Why then? would a clear conscience be the reason as to why this author can so boldly command them to pray for him? Well, you've got to remember the context of this book. As I said earlier, he has been very hard on these people. He's been truthful, but he's been hard. And he's given them some stern warnings about what will happen if they forsake Christ. And now as he gets to the end of the book, he says, I'm asking you to pray for me, but I want to let you know that before God, my conscience is clear. In other words, I didn't beat around the bush. I hit you right between the eyes. I told you the truth. Tough love, I told you the truth. Faithful to the wounds of a friend. I have no regrets. I held nothing back. When someone comes to you and he asks you or she asks you to pray for them, You need to make sure, you need to make sure that that person is being open and honest with you because the sincerity and the effectiveness of their prayer request and your prayer is contingent upon the clean conscience of that individual have you ever had someone come to you and ask you for prayer and say, will you pray for me? And you say, sure, just give me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about what's going on. And they start to give you an answer and they hold back all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of underlying sin in their life and there are all kinds of compromises, but yet there's one area of their life where they want you to pray for them, but yet they haven't been open with you. And so you don't probe. And unwittingly, you just say, sure, I'll be praying for you. You just take what they say at face value, and you agree to pray, and you do pray. But the real issue is not being dealt with at all, because it's not even on the radar, because the person who has come to you has not come with a clear conscience. On the other hand, when someone comes to you and asks for prayer, and this person is coming with a clear conscience, they have no secrets They are right with God, and they are right with their fellow man. And even if this person has rebuked you and warned you sternly, they are coming to you with a clear conscience, and you can hear them because they are a straight shooter. Nothing between their soul and the Savior. It is a sincere prayer request because their conscience is clear. Vine put it this way, request for prayer can only right be, rightly be made where the conscience of the requester is clear before God. The writer of Hebrews had no doubt of this in his own case, end quote, and well said. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect in order to make a prayer request, but I am saying you have to be sincere. Listen to the words of Psalm 66:18. 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart... The Lord would not have listened. In other words, God's not a fool. He's not mocked. You come, you're asking prayer, and at the same time, you are clinging to your sin and you will not let go of it. You've short-circuited the Lord. He's not a fool. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God is not mocked. He knows what's in your heart. And so as you bring your request for prayer, are you doing so with a clear conscience? And notice also, it's not just his conscience, but remember that participial phrase, there is also the resolve on his part to live honorably, desiring to act honorably in all things. So there's this clear heart and there's this desire for a pure life. Now, as promised, we will now come back to the reason. All I've done up to this point is just define the word conscience for you. He uses the word clear conscience to describe himself. Here's the punchline. In fact, here's the most important thing I'm going to say in the entire sermon. How is it that someone, anyone, obtains a clear conscience? How is it obtained? Well, it certainly isn't obtained by ignoring it saying to your conscience, hey, I hear you, but we'll have a conversation later, come back another day. And it isn't by medication, and it isn't by going to a therapist, and it isn't by an overload of activity or entertainment, and it is not by doing good works to appease your conscience, and it certainly isn't by religion. A clear conscience can only be obtained through The blood that is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for the gospel when it comes to the conscience is of first importance. In this book, this author uses this word three times previously, and in each case he uses the word conscience to make it very clear that Judaism does not clear the conscience, but only Jesus Christ and his precious blood can. Do a little Bible study with me. Go back and look at these three occurrences, chapter 9 and verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, that's in Judaism, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. Look over in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, that is the gospel, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, that is the gospel, without blemish to God, what will that death of Jesus Christ, who was offered up by the Holy Spirit, do? Here's what it'll do. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You got a bad conscience. You want your conscience to be cleared. There ain't but one way to do it, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verses 20. 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that is access to God by the blood of Jesus, that is the gospel, by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain, that is his flesh, that is the gospel. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, there's our word for the day, and our bodies washed with pure water. How is it that anybody gets a clear conscience? It is through the gospel. So when this guy comes before them and says, I have a clear conscience, does it make any sense whatsoever that previously in the book he would use this word three times, and he would make it abundantly clear that the only way that you get a clear conscience is through Jesus, and then for him to talk about himself over in chapter 13 and say, I have a clear conscience with God somehow as to imply I got this clear conscience from God through my own good works or just because I'm such a good guy. No, he got a clear conscience the same way that everybody else gets a clear conscience. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you have done. I do not know where you have been. I don't know what's going through your mind. I don't know what words you have said, but he knows every one of them. And you know most of them. And you talk to you. And when you talk to you, you tell yourself that there's something not right. And you need to make that right. How do you make that right? Through your good works, your piety, your religiosity, your sacrifice, sincerity? No, 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 no. You make your conscience clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is how this author did it. That is the only way to do it. So the question for you today, Leonard Skinner, is Does your conscience bother you? That's a good question. If you're in sin, it should bother you because you are actually guilty. How do you get peace? Through Christ alone. How do you get that monkey off your back? Through Christ alone. How do you avoid the problem of Lady Macbeth, whose hands were perfectly clean, but all she could see was the blood to, to, to get the spots out? The wicked flee when no one is chasing. How do you get you off your back? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your conscience is your friend. You know when you're cooking something and accidentally you touch the stove or you touch a pan and it's hot and, and, and immediately your nerve endings spring into action and they shoot pain through your hand and up your arm. And what do you think immediately? You think my nerve endings are my enemy when in reality they are your friend. They are telling you that something is wrong. Listen to them lest you burn your hand off. The conscience of your soul is your friend. Listen to it. And then, once you have listened to it, take it and run with it as fast as you can to the only place of relief, Jesus Christ. First John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit works in us to constantly take us back to the fount of cleansing. And as we do, with sincerity, we, along with this author, can say, I have a clear conscience And they know that he has a clear conscience because his conscience has been cleansed the same way that their conscience has been cleansed. And he has a resolve to live a holy life. And that is very important because Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But he can go with them confidently and say, pray for us. And they can pray because of his clear conscience and his resolve to live holy with passion and consistency and enthusiasm and confidence and faith. I think that's what it means as to why they should pray for him at this time specifically. Which brings us to the third and final point, and that is, what is the specific prayer request? And that is answered in verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I'm really begging you. Like, like I'm getting into this, and I am begging you to pray for me. And here's the one thing that I want you to pray, is that I can get to you quicker than I otherwise would. Now, implied in this is that he previously had been with them because you cannot restore something that did not exist in the first place. Uh, also implied in this is the sad reality that something is hindering him from getting to them. And we don't know what it is. Maybe it's the devil. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's responsibility in other places. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's prison. We don't have any idea, but they know the answer to that. And, and, and you can say with certainty, that he's asking for earnest prayer, appealing for prayer, that this thing that is deterring him from getting to them would be removed. Something's holding him up, and they probably know what it is, and so they are to pray that it would be removed. Most importantly, I want you to note that this teaches that prayer is the means that God uses to bring about his purposes and to bring them about better and more quickly. Notice the word sooner. Implied in this is that if they didn't pray, then they would not have this person brought to them sooner. So he knows that he's going to get to Rome. The question is when, and this verse indicates that prayer is going to speed that up. Now, we believe in Reformed theology, Uh, That is, we believe that whatever will be, will be. And we believe that God, Isaiah 46.10, declares the end from the beginning. Whatever will be, will be. Uh, The alternative is ridiculous. You cannot believe that whatever will be, will not be. We, We believe that God has control and that he has determined all things that take place. But we are not fatalists. And by that I mean we do not say nor do we believe that our prayers or our actions have no no matter at all. They do matter. You see, the same God who ordains the end ordains the means by which the end will be accomplished, and the means that God has accomplished to bring about His predetermined end is prayer. God uses the prayer of His people to bring about His purposes. We know from 1 John 5, 14 and 15 that if we pray anything according to His will, that He hears us and that He answers. So, what is it that you want God to do? Is it to save your loved ones? Is it to send revival to this church? Is it that we will get additional elders in this church? Is it to bring someone who is serving in the armed forces back home safely? Is it to heal your body? Is it for your depression to disappear? Is it to find a spouse or to have a baby or to get a job? Or is it for the Lord to bring abortion in our country to an end? What is it that you want God to do? The Bible says it is very proper to ask God to do those things and to ask others to pray with you that God will do these things. Philippians four thing, four six, we are to make our request with thanksgiving known to God. 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, we are to pray without ceasing. Uh, James chapter four verse two, we have not because we ask not. And in the Old King James, James chapter five verse sixteen, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Charles Spurgeon was. Arguably the most talented and gifted minister that ever lived. He, he might have been the most talented, apart from Christ, he might have been the most talented and gifted human being that ever lived. And he was certainly the most influential person of the 19th century. And an American went to England and had a question for Spurgeon, and he said, We in America are very curious, Mr. Spurgeon, what is the secret of your great influence? And Spurgeon paused and very humbly, but yet truthfully responded, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. Look, preaching, some people like different styles, some people like shorter sermons. People who like shorter sermons usually don't attend this church for very long. Some people like more stories. Some people don't like stories. Like, like, like preferences in preaching, they, they, they there's a, a wide range. And I, and I get that. But I would say this. Do you pray for your preacher? The more you pray for your preacher, the more you yourself will get out of the sermon. What Spurgeon say? My people pray for me. What a humble response! And he was right. H- have you ever considered how often the great apostle Paul, who was a better Christian than Charles Spurgeon, how often he requested prayer? Uh, let's go on a little ride. Romans chapter fifteen, verse thirty. Paul writes, "Strive together with me in your prayers." Second uh, Corinthians one eleven. You must also. Help us by prayer. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.19 about prayer. Why do you want people to pray that words may be given to me? Philippians chapter one verse nineteen. Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Colossians chapter four verse three. Pray also for us. First Thessalonians five twenty five. Brothers, pray for us. Second Thessalonians three, one. Finally, brothers, pray for us. Philemon twenty-two. I am hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be given to you. That's eight times, and that's what I counted. There might be more. That's eight times where Paul requests prayer because he's humble and he knows that prayer is the means that God uses to accomplish great things. Now, if the apostle Paul needed prayer and if he was humble enough to ask for prayer, how much more should we be asking for prayer for ourselves and how much more should we be praying? Prayer is a kind gift from God and we ought to employ it more vigorously and it shouldn't be one of those nebulous concepts which doesn't actually translate into doing, like love and faith and sacrifice and diet and exercise. It needs to be something that we actually do. What is the specific prayer that is requested? Well, he wants to more quickly be united with this congregation which shows his love for them. So those are the answers to the three questions of who, why, and what. Very quickly then, may I please give you four points of application. Point number one, be humble enough to ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you. Sometimes people just don't do it because they are either ashamed to do it or they don't want to bother people or they say, I got this thing, I don't need prayer. Be humble enough to ask for prayer. Number two, when someone asks you to pray, pray and write it down immediately because if you don't write it down, you will forget it. Quite often, people from the church will come to me and they will ask me to pray for them and I mean well and I say that I will But then when I forget to write it down, I forget it. And then they come up to me later and they say, thank you for praying for me. So then I have two problems. One is prayerlessness and the other one is lying. So (laughs) write it down, write it down immediately so that you remember it. Number three, join us for prayer meetings at the church on Tuesdays at noon if your schedule allows. There are about 16 of us currently who gather every Tuesday, faithful prayer warriors who lift up the church. Now, if you have to work, please don't quit your job to come to the prayer meeting. If you are in school, you are not permitted to skip out of school. Get that diploma. Stay in school. But some of you could come, and if you can come, we welcome you. And even if you can't come, I would say please make arrangements with fellow church members to pray with them. And finally, application point number four, do whatever it takes to develop or to regain or to retain a soft, clear conscience. Do whatever you gotta do to have a soft conscience. Now, how do I do that? Well, it begins with having that honest conversation with yourself, conscience, conscience with yourself. Sit down and talk to yourself and ask yourself what is going on and listen. It begins by asking the Holy Spirit to to try you. And then it immediately moves into taking those sins to Jesus for the cleansing from his blood. And then it probably includes going to your fellow man and seeking forgiveness where you have been wrong. You know one of the reasons why we will not listen to our conscience? It's not so much that we are afraid to go to Jesus and to ask him to forgive us. It's that we are afraid that we will either be shamed Or embarrassed, or that it will cost us something to go to the person that we have wronged, and we just can't allow that to get out into the open. You want a clear conscience? You gotta be right with God. You gotta be right with your fellow man. It means moving on with a resolve to live uprightly in all things. It means keeping a guard on your mouth and your ears and your eyes. It means applying the gospel to your thought life through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means doing whatever it takes to develop the ability to hurt deeply and quickly when sin is introduced into your life. The more you tolerate sin, the harder your conscience will become and the more you radically extract it And go to Jesus for cleansing the softer and clearer and more helpful your conscience will be. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, wrote an unsingable hymn. Uh, The title of the hymn is, I Want a Principle Within. Not like the leader of a school, but like a guiding principle. I I want a principle within. I wish someone would, would take these words and write a different tune to them so that we could sing it because the truth here is profound. I close with the lyrics to I Want a Principle Within. I want a principle within of watchful godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. Help me, the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and quench the Spirit's fire. Almighty God of love, truth and love, to me thy power impart. The burden of my soul remove the hardness from my heart. O may the least omission pain my reckoned soul and drive me to that grace again which makes the wounded whole. Now, I believe that if God would give every person in this room a soft, clear, cleansed conscience, we would turn New York City upside down and there would be a revival such as we have never seen. But it's not going to happen if we have hard hearts which are content to be distant from God. So may God, the Holy Spirit, work deeply within you that you may have a soft conscience, a clear conscience and a confidence before God. Father in heaven, I do pray that you will do this because only you can do this. Lord, please, do not allow us, even if we are mature, to take sin lightly. Do not allow us, Lord, to take prayerlessness lightly. I pray, God, that you would give us all soft, clear consciences that we might sleep well at night that we might live honorably before our fellow man and that there might be nothing between our souls and the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.